chapter 26, beginning at verse 17 um, of all of the gospel passages that record the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with his disciples and the institution of what we refer to as the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion. This in Matthew is my favorite. Um, It's one of those passages that I think you could camp on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you could never really get uh, to the bottom of it because what is set before us uh, in this passage is the significance of the cross work of Christ. And some of the blessings of that that are represented for us in this meal we'll look at as we look at this passage this morning. So hear and be encouraged by the word of God. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it we give thanks. Let's pray together. Lord, please do come and be with us. Um, We ask you that as we leave this place today, our hearts might be full of wonder and amazement and gratitude and even song. Lord, may we leave this supper and go out into the world singing, but singing with understanding because of what we see here and what we feel and taste and participate in here. Lord, would you come and uh, enable us by your Spirit to see these wonderful things in your word, we pray. In your name, amen. You may be seated. Every once in a while, uh, something happens which uh, reminds me 
uh, sort of crystallizes for me just how different uh, the church is, just how different the gospel is, just how different the Christian faith and life is from everything else. Uh, and it happened this morning. It wasn't, I didn't plan it, but God did. I mean, you know, these things that just happen don't just happen. My oldest daughter has a great definition of providence. She calls providence God working mysteriously. God working anonymously. You know, not sort of overtly and explicitly. You read between the lines and and you reflect and you think and you understand that there is a hand, an invisible hand that does order and move and direct everything. It's in the scriptures. It's just kind of a wonderful serendipitous thing when it happens in your personal experience and you see it. And that happened this morning. It happened when I went out to pick up the morning newspaper and to get it off the driveway before the sprinklers went on and soaked it, you know, baptized my newspaper. And maybe you saw the headline. Front page of the Press Journal. Sorting out the blame. Sorting out the blame. Now, the world's way of doing things is to try to sort out the blame. It's not just in Washington where... Lawyers are going to be hired, and people are going to give depositions, and witnesses are going to be summoned, and time is going to be invested, and money is going to be spent to sort out the blame. It's not just in Washington where that happens. That's how life tends to work in a gospel-less place in a gospel-less place, in a place where wrongdoing produces the extremes of denial and self-righteousness. Denial and self-righteousness. That's what happens in a gospel-less place, a place where even the attempt to act with honesty with forthrightness, gets swallowed up by the cacophony of sound associated with sorting out the blame and diverting the blame away from me and finding a scapegoat who can bear the sins of the people and suffer the consequences of those sins. But, it's different in the church, and but is a big, big word. It is a word that draws a distinction. It's different in the church. It's different with the gospel. And the supper, this table, this passage, the gospel for our ears and the gospel for our eyes, for our hands, for our taste buds, The gospel is a reminder of that difference. It's more than a reminder, to be sure. Our tradition, our Reformed tradition, uh, 
uh, understands this table to be actually a means by which, using the language of the larger, larger catechism, a means by which Christ communicates the benefits of his redemption to his people. So, it is more than a reminder, but it isn't less than a reminder. It's just the reminder part of it. That's why I said, you know, I could spend weeks on Matthew 26 reflecting on the things that are here. It's more than a reminder, but I, I want just to spend some time on the reminder side of this this morning and suggest to you that among many things that we could and should be reminded of, there are four things that this table intends to remind us of. And you can think of them, if you will, as uh, the four points of the compass. If you're lost and you need to know where you are, you get a compass and you find out where north is, where south is, where east is, where west is. And once you've determined that, you can have some idea of where you are and where you ought to go. And these are like four points of the compass, four reminders, four looks, if you will. A look in, a look back, a look up, and a look ahead. Four points of the compass. And I'm going to present them in a particular order, but let me suggest that any one of the four leads you inevitably to the others. Some of you need four more than three. Some of you need three more than two or one. Some of you need one a whole lot. Some of you need two. They're all related. They all hang together, and one inevitably leads you to the others. But because I can't talk about all four of them all at the same time, we've got to take them one by one. So we'll take the first one first, the look inward. The look inward. What does the table remind us of? Well, it reminds us that I have first to look at myself. This text is a sobering text. This narrative is a sobering narrative. It is the Passover it is a time when Jesus, uh, obviously, just in the hours before his death, is instituting this supper by which that death is to be remembered. And he meets and eats with his 12 disciples. And, and Jesus says to these 12, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to bet- betray me. We could spend a whole lot of time talking about the fact that this Betrayal is something that is ordained and ordered and executed by God. That it is not a mistake. That it is not a miscarriage of justice. It is not some sort of historical anomaly. It was appointed by God, determined by God. We could plumb the depths of that. But just know, Jesus has this conversation. One of you will betray me. And as you read the other narratives, the other gospel narratives, you learn in John's gospel that after Jesus identifies Judas as the one who will betray him, Judas leaves. Now, clearly he comes back because he is there in the garden to betray Jesus to the guards. But at some time before the supper is completed before the gospel is fully disclosed, if you will, fully revealed, fully made known, Judas leaves. He departs. He goes away. Now, if I'm at that supper, if I can just have you hit the pause button for a second. If I'm at that supper, here's how my heart works. And I suspect 
though I'm not in your skin, I'm, I suspect yours might work similarly. Oh, good. The problem's gone. Now we can enjoy supper together. Oh, good. The liar, the deceiver, the betrayer is out of the room. Now we can enjoy fellowship with Jesus. That's how my heart tends to work. I'm not the problem. But again, as you read, for example, the rest of this narrative, it becomes very clear that the other 11 who remained in the room were every bit as much a problem as was Judas. It's just a little bit later in Matthew's account of the last hours of Jesus that Peter denies Jesus three times. If, if you read those verses at the end of this chapter, Peter actually calls down a curse upon himself. God forbid that I know this man. Three times he denied knowing him. God forbid that I know this man. May I suffer a curse if I'm not telling the truth. May I be cut off from God. Peter at that moment, in his insanity, in his perversity, in his foolishness, Peter summoned God as witness. It isn't just Judas who's the problem. Peter's a problem. The one who had dinner with Jesus. The one whose feet Jesus had washed. If you read Luke's account of this, it's really even more arresting. Luke's account, this statement that Jesus makes precipitates a conversation among the disciples about who's the greatest. Not only am I not the one who would betray you, but they get into a discussion about who would be the greatest. Has the problem left the room? Has Elvis left the building? Now the supper, this meal that we share in the Spirit, that we share with Christ, this meal is an occasion for me to be looking honestly at myself. We've read the law this morning. We've read these Ten Commandments. They are to serve as a mirror for us. Uh, We're to look into that mirror and we're to ask ourselves, what do I see here? Have I coveted? Have I stolen? Have I erected something, anything, in the place of God to which I look, which I trust in any sense at any level for my security, for my deliverance, for my well-being, for my joy, for my blessedness, for my happiness. Not a piece of stone, not a block of wood that I carve and, and cut up and give shape to, but something in my heart of hearts that I know I look to for safety and security. My home, my family, my country, the freedoms I enjoy in it, a political process, 
I'm only the messenger. Is there anything, as I look at this law, anything that through this law I see as an idol to which I look for my well-being? Or the summary of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's another mirror. Actually, it's the same mirror. It's just a summary of the mirror. It's a hand mirror, if you will. And it exposes me. It reveals me. It shows me who I am. Psalm 73, verse 25. I read a sermon from this text last night. I was telling Barb this morning, it's so important for me to do that on Saturday night, to read a sermon to quiet my heart, to remind myself the gospel's true, to remind me that Jesus really loves me. But unfortunately, I read a sermon from Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can I really say that? You see, if not, as I look honestly at myself, and peer in to the depths of my soul, then I find things there that disqualify me at one level from being here or from coming to this table. Now, I say at one level, and I say it for this reason. I say it because at another level, it is precisely the honest assessment of myself, the honest examination of my own heart and those things that I have erected in God's, as God's in my life, it is precisely the honest and sober assessment of my own heart. What the Bible calls repentance, acknowledging that it is there, not doing the shuck and jive, the blame shifting, the sorting out, but the honest assessment and acceptance of my own sin and brokenness and corruption, it is precisely that at another level that qualifies me to be here and that qualifies me to come to this table. Repentance. Not sorting out the blame, but accepting and owning what is mine and acknowledging it before God and coming to Him in repentance. This first hymn that we sang, number 168, I don't know how familiar it is to you. Uh, It is one of my all-time favorite billboard chart-topping hymns. My understanding is that John Calvin penned it. I know that it was sung at St. Peter's because it was in the Genevan Psalter. And in that hymn is a reference to this marvelous verse in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise, O Lord. So to look at my heart, to assess it, to examine it, to repent, to come acknowledging who and what I am, 
That is what qualifies me to be here. And that's the inward look. And then there's a second look. There's the looking back. Looking back to the cross of Christ. Back to His broken body. Back to His shed blood. Back to the sacrifice of which these elements are symbols. That's what Christ says as He inaugurates this supper On the Passover night, he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. To come to the table is to look back and to be reminded that Christ's very real body was broken. And it's so important to recognize that Jesus does not share a slaughtered lamb with the disciples, but he shares bread with the disciples. The commentators will point that out. And why is that? Well, you know why that is. You will know that all of those lambs that were slaughtered, all of those goats that were killed, all of those bulls, all of those point ahead to this other sacrifice that would be offered And now Jesus is saying, I am that perfect sacrifice. And you don't have to look ahead anymore to next year when we do Passover again, when we do the Day of Atonement again. Those days are fulfilled in what will happen tomorrow. And so never again will blood be shed because the one to whom all of those ceremonies point is here. He is the substitute. He is the little lamb, the little goat taken into the home on the night of the Passover, loved by the children and then taken out of the home and slaughtered as a substitute for that family by the father. He is the ram caught in the thicket whose life is given for the son of Abraham, Isaac, that he might be spared and rather than have death, no life. He is the scapegoat upon whom the high priest himself confesses all of the sins of the people. He confesses them. He takes them. And he is led out into the wilderness where he suffers and dies bearing the reproach of God away from the people. This Passover meal is about Christ, the substitute, the sacrifice has been made. It's so important that we look back to the cross and not take it lightly. And it's especially important for some of us, I think. Some of us have a tendency to do this inward look thing and end up feeling crushed and overwhelmed. So painfully aware are we of our sin. And we can persuade ourselves or we can allow the enemy of our souls to persuade us that our sin is bigger than the cross. Or that our repeated sin is bigger than the cross. The thing I've done not for the first or the second time, but the thing I've done for the 30th time or the 50th time or the 60th time. And it is so important to look back to the cross and understand that the blood has been shed once and for all, never to be shed again, and that it is a death of infinite, limitless value. 
and your sin and your fears about your sin actually become the means by which you may know the depths of the riches of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards has a marvelous sermon on Psalm 25, 10 and 11 that makes precisely this point. Have mercy upon me, O God, because my sin is great. It is the greatness of his sin that causes him to cry out for the mercy of God. Not the greatness of his sin that he senses has a disqualifying effect and removes him from the grace and mercy of God. Martin Luther has this great passage in his commentary. By the way, you're going to learn from me that my best friends are dead. I mean, I have some pretty good living, good friends, but my best friends are dead. And Edwards and Luther are among them. This is Luther commenting in his commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians. When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner, therefore you are damned, then we can answer him and say, because you say that I am a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. No, no, says the devil, you will be damned. No, no, I say, for I take refuge in Christ who has given Himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, or conscience, or unbelieving heart, you will not prevail against me as you try to frighten me by showing me the magnitude of my sins And to plunge me into anguish, loss of faith, despair, hatred, even contempt of God and blasphemy. In fact, when you say that I am a sinner, you provide me with armor and weapons against yourself so that I may slit your throat with your own sword and trample you underfoot. You, yourself, devil, are preaching the glory of God to me. For you are reminding me, a miserable and condemned sinner, of the fatherly love of God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. You are reminding me of the blessing of Christ, my Redeemer. Why is it important to remember, to look back, to reflect, to consider the cross? particularly for those of us whose hearts are so tender, whose consciences are so easily bruised, it is important to look back at that death and see that the blood has been shed once and for all and that that death is sufficient for the totality of my sin. The struggle is not, I know, the struggle is not to understand it. The struggle is to believe it for some of us. And to those of you for whom it is difficult, let me plead with you and encourage you that your great work, your great energies should be given not in an attempt to clean yourself up well enough to come, but truly your greatest energies should be exerted in struggling to believe that it really is true, that it's big enough for you 
So it is right to look inward. It is right to assess ourselves. It is a good thing. And, and you just need to know, you need to know that my duty as a pastor is to encourage this. You need to know that my theological understanding is not an end in itself. My theological understanding is there to serve the office I fill as pastor. And so to seek to understand the cross and everything that leads up to it and flows out of it, these are not ideas in my head. This is the medicine that our souls need. And it is a good idea. It is a right thing for us to take an honest assessment of ourselves, to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. And then it is so necessary and so right to look back and see that cross and see Christ upon it and understand that in Christ there is, again, as that first hymn so wonderfully describes, in Christ there is a true and perfect gentleness directed towards sinners. And then there's a third look. You look in, you look back, and you look up. These emblems of bread and the cup, they point us in multiple directions. They certainly point us back to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, but they point us up as well. They are bread and they are wine. And bread and wine, take this home, (laughs) Uh, take this home and chew on it this afternoon. That's not in the manuscript, honestly. It just, take this home and chew on it, reflect on it. These emblems of bread and wine, these are metaphors. (laughs) They point back to the broken body and the shed blood, but they point up as well. Because bread nourishes. And the scriptures say that wine gladdens the heart. And Isaiah 55.1 is this summons to come. Come. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come and eat. Come and enjoy. Come to the waters. Listen to me. Eat what is good. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread? Bread and wine. They are pictures. They are emblems. They are symbols of the life and the joy of the kingdom. And when we come to this table, again, to to, to suggest a little bit about the fact that we feed really and truly upon the life of Christ at this table, we come not only to remember, but we do come to remember that we feed upon Christ, that our life is His life, His life is our life, that we are in Him, that He is the vine and we are the branches. And that in being united to Him, having union with Him, His life becomes our life. His joy becomes our joy. The whole trouble with human beings is they they forget. Even for Christians, they forget that life and blessedness are to be found no place else. 
life and joy are to be found no place else. They're not to be found over, under, around, above the cross. But in and through the cross, we gain access to Christ and to the life and the joy that are to be found in him. So that somebody, even like the psalmist, even like David, looking down the corridors of history, can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? And in earth there is nothing I desire save you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever, my inheritance, my blessedness, my joy. The table reminds us, communion reminds us that we are in him, that he is in us, that we are the vine, that he is the vine, we are the branches And there is no possibility of knowing or bearing any fruit apart from Him. And so the Christian life, isn't it, isn't it really and truly, isn't the Christian life the struggle moment by moment to live in glad dependence upon Jesus rather than living independently because He is our life. And then finally, you look in, you look back, you look up, and you look ahead. And this is what makes this passage my favorite of the gospel narratives of the institution of the Lord's Supper. I'm struck by this 29th verse. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now understand that the cup for Jesus was the cup of wrath. It's the cup that he took away from his people so that his people would not know wrath. It is the cup of God's judgment poured out upon Jesus so that you might not be judged. But in verse 29, as Jesus is wont to do, it seems to me in so many instances, the metaphor shifts, the picture shifts, the image shifts from one of wrath and judgment in the previous verses now to one of the blessedness of his father's house. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my father's house. The fruit of the vine is an image, a picture of blessedness. And Jesus says, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it with you in my father's house. I'm not going to enjoy the full blessedness of my Father's house until you are there to enjoy it with me. Is it possible to conceive that the incarnate Son of God, this mysterious union of the divine and the human, could deny Himself some pleasure, some joy, some blessedness, postponing it until those whom He loves are present to enjoy it with Him? I think that's what this passage is saying to us. That Jesus will not be happy until you are happy. That Jesus will not be satisfied until you are truly satisfied. Now, I've got an authority whose name many of you know. He's an authority for me and he's one of those really good still living friends, though he is getting older. 
J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, writes this. It's on page 113 in the original 1973 edition. We have said in previous chapters that God's end in all things is his own glory, that he should be manifested, known, admired, adored. This statement is true, but it is incomplete. It needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on particular men, God has voluntarily bound up his own final happiness with theirs. It is not for nothing that the Bible habitually speaks of God as the loving father and husband of his people. It follows from the very nature of these relationships that God's happiness will not be complete till all his beloved ones are finally out of trouble. God was happy without man before man was made. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed man after man had sinned. But as it is, he has set his love upon particular sinners. And this means that by his own free voluntary choice, he will not know perfect and unmixed happiness again until he has brought every one of them to heaven. He has in effect resolved that henceforth for all eternity, his Happiness shall be conditional upon ours. And that is what Jesus, it seems to me, is saying to his sons, to his brothers, to his people across the ages. I will not know the full measure of the joy of my father's house until you are there to know it and enjoy it with me. And so this table reminds us to look ahead as well and to know that the day is coming when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will return for every one of his beloved and will fully and finally deliver them out of all of their troubles and usher them into the full enjoyment of the blessedness of his Father's house, who is our Father because of him. I want to tell you something. I think politics in Washington, D.C. would be a whole lot different if people understood this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, gracious, merciful, mysterious, good, kind, forgiving, loving, stunning, would you look with favor upon us Would you seal to our hearts these things we have heard? And now as we come to this table, may we be amazed yet again, grateful yet again. And may we feed upon the living Christ by your spirit as he comes to meet with us here. We ask, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.